Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 23, Ghosts of the Ancient World This episode will be a bit of a departure from the normal ghost anthropology episode in that I will not be speaking of a specific ghost story, but rather I'll be talking about what evidence we have for belief in ghosts in the ancient world. While this is different from a normal episode, I do think you'll enjoy it. There's some good creepy stuff here, but also a fair amount of history, archaeology, and ethnography. Let's get started. A ghost story recorded by the Roman writer Pliny the Younger dated to the 1st century BC, is often reported as the first recorded ghost story. This claim is debatable at best, but the story itself is interesting. Pliny tells that a friend of his, the philosopher Athendorus Canonidas, had moved to Athens and, in seeking housing, found an excellent home for a surprisingly low price. Athenodorus soon discovered why. He learned that the house had a reputation for being haunted by the ghost of a man, said to wander the grounds carrying heavy chains. Athenodorus found this fascinating and was very happy to rent the home. One night, as he stayed up late writing, he heard the sound of chains rattling, which he had been told was a sign of the ghost. He looked up and saw an apparition. The man, known to be dead, was beckoning him with his finger. Athenodorus, having far more cool than any other person in the history of ghostly lore, made a gesture to the ghost that it needed to cool its heels and wait, and then he went back to writing. After a short time, the spirit began to make noise again, rattling its chains near Athenodorus's head, which caused the philosopher to stop and look at the ghost again. The ghost again made a hand motion, indicating that Athenodorus should follow it. This time, the philosopher obeyed, and followed the ghost into the yard, where it vanished. Athenodorus marked the spot where it had vanished. The next day, Athenodorus suggested to the local magistrates that they dig at this marked location, which they did. They found the remains of a skeleton commingled with chains, suggesting that someone had died miserably and then been left without proper burial by Greco-Roman standards. It's all there. The ghost with unfinished business trying to get someone to find the cause of its unrest and fix it, and the house with a reputation for haunting, although Pliny hints at it having a much longer reputation for being a generally unwholesome place, though he is vague on the specifics of the unwholesomeness. And while the ghost-rattling chains went out of fashion shortly after the 19th century, even that component is present. It is a thoroughly modern ghost story. 
but it comes from a Roman writer who wrote it down over 2,000 years ago. And this begs the question, how long have ghost stories been with us? How long have we had stories that match our modern template of the ghost story? How common are our modern conceptions of ghosts? These questions struck me as I watched a lecture by archaeologist Dr. Irving Finkel regarding ghost beliefs in ancient Iraq. I will link the video of the lecture to the show notes as his presentation is worth seeing. Unfortunately, the book that he's written on the subject is not out yet, so I could not read it. One to add to my list. Dr. Finkel opens his lecture by stating that the first ghosts, in scare quotes, appear in the Middle East, Mesopotamia, in the area that now comprises Iraq. The Sumerians, and later Assyrians, left clay tablets with writing in proto-cuneiform and later in cuneiform, dating as far back as 5,000 years ago. Some of these writings pertain to beliefs in the supernatural, including a belief in demons and in ghosts. Now, the ancient people in Mesopotamia made a distinction between ghosts, called Gedum or Etumu, and demons, called Udug or Utuku. Ghosts were the spirits of humans that had died, while demons were a separate entity altogether that was malevolent. There was also something of a mathematical formula for the difference between demons and ghosts. A ghost's makeup was one-third of Ishtar, or goddess, and two-thirds other things while demons were two-thirds Ishtar and one-third other things. Demons and ghosts also seemed to serve different purposes culturally. Demons were the personification of known dangers or problems, such as illness, poverty, or untimely death, due, for example, to childbirth. As an aside, due to the movie The Exorcist, many people know Pazuzu as a Sumerian demon, but Pazuzu was not a demon, but was instead a protector that warded off demons. The more you know. While demons personified evils, ghosts were the return of humans for whom something was unresolved, unfinished business from life or an improper burial after death being common causes, which, again, sounds rather modern and is also consistent with the example from Pliny described earlier in the episode. While demons were thought to always be stalking humans looking for ways to do harm, ghosts were, according to Dr. Finkel, more mundane, taken for granted and an accepted part of life. Just as you might develop a cockroach infestation from improper cleaning, you might also end up with a haunting if your family members, who were likely buried in the courtyard of your home, were not properly cared for after death or had a life that left them with matters unresolved. In short, the potential for a haunting likely served as a reminder that you had responsibilities to care for your family and your community, lest you end up with a ghost pestering you. Now, I say that ghosts were not typically thought of as being the same sort of evil that demons were, but it should be noted that some ghosts were thought to cause illness. Dr. Finkel specifically cites migraines as being due to ghosts. So, there was some overlap with demons, at least in behavior but they did seem to be considered distinct entities. There were Mesopotamian priests and sorcerers who specialized in the warding off or exorcism of demons and ghosts. The first line of defense was usually clay objects with spells of protection or words of power written on them. These words were typically nonsense in the language of the people making the tablet, but were possibly derived from actual words in other, older languages. 
If these tablets didn't work, then incantations and rituals might be used to exercise a ghost. One example given by Dr. Finkel is an incantation that tells a ghost that the person who is being haunted will not follow the ghost to the entrance of the land of the dead and invokes the name of the queen of the underworld and the scribe of the gods in instructing the ghost to depart, while also indicating that the ghost in question was of a long-dead culture. Though Dr. Finkel didn't comment much on this, it led me to wonder if the people of Mesopotamia had a concept that the ancient peoples of the lands might wish them ill and might tempt the unwary to an early death. One tablet, dating to 800 BC, shows a drawing of a ghost of an old man tied with a rope being led off by a female spirit and contains writing explaining that the female spirit will serve as the ghost's lover in the afterlife, providing a reason for the ghost to leave. The tablet showing the ghost being led away was found buried with grave goods, as would have been the case with the burial of a body, suggesting that this ritual served as the second burial, though one lacking a corpse, of the person whose ghost was being exorcised. Dr. Finkel also describes clay models of beds being made, with the intention that a spirit, and it's unclear if the spirit is a ghost or something else, would seduce the ghost in that bed and then lead them off to the afterlife. While some of the earlier concepts of ghosts seem quite modern, the sexual and romantic element, while not entirely missing from modern fiction, is not a significant part of ghost folklore in modern Europe and North America. There was a class of sorcerer in ancient Mesopotamia that we would nowadays call a necromancer. They dealt in magic dealing with the dead, and were said to be able to, through certain rituals, call up the dead and have them provide information, often about the future, to the living. The surviving cuneiform writings on the topic indicate that special potions and the skull of the deceased were required for this type of ritual. Dr. Finkel cites the story of the Witch of Endor from the Old Testament as an example of this. In the story, Saul, the king of Israel, asks an old necromancer to raise the spirit of the prophet Samuel to provide advice. Personally, I'd be more likely to cite the Epic of Gilgamesh, in which the Sumerian king Gilgamesh works to have his friend Enkidu temporarily returned from the underworld, and Enkidu tells Gilgamesh of the state of the spirits in the land of the dead. While the Sumerian and Roman writings discussed so far suggest a history that encompasses many of the Western ghost beliefs still current today, it does beg the question of when, exactly, humans first started believing in ghosts. Although Dr. Finkel describes these 5,000-year-old cuneiform writings as being evidence of the first ghosts, he later explains that Neanderthal burials indicate intentional burial as part of a ritual up to 70,000 years ago. And I know from my own training that there is evidence of anatomically modern humans who coexisted with Neanderthals for quite some time, burying their dead with ritual as far back as 100,000 years ago. Ritual burial suggests a belief in sanctity of the dead, and, therefore, may possibly indicate a belief in an afterlife, although this is less certain and really is speculation. At any rate, what evidence is available suggests that supernatural beliefs regarding what happens after a human dies may be quite ancient indeed. So, the stories that Dr. Finkel shares from Iraq are probably not evidence of the earliest belief in ghosts, but rather the first written records pertaining to ghosts. And of course, the belief that the dead can return and interact with the living is widespread throughout the world. However, the question of just how universal a belief in the afterlife is in general, and a belief in ghosts specifically, 
is surprisingly difficult to tease out. Part of the problem may have to do with how the people who translate tales of the supernatural choose to translate them. For example, a paper I found by Caitlin Scally notes that English translations of the Icelandic sagas often translate dragur, a term referring to a reanimated corpse or revenant, as ghost. Both the dragar and the ghost represent the dead returning, certainly, and the dragars typically create problems for their family or communities in much the same way that Dr. Finkel suggests the Mesopotamian ghosts did. However, the dragar inhabit decomposing bodies, while we tend to think of ghosts as being non-corporeal. So it may be that distinct concepts are, at times, confused for each other by the words chosen when translating. Of course, the distinction between the embodied unquiet dead and the disembodied itself may not be as firm as we tend to think. Dr. Finkel in his talks speaks of grave goods being left with the dead for their use in the afterlife, a practice also well known from ancient Egypt. Grave goods are likewise found in contexts ranging from hunter-gatherer societies in the Americas to the imperial tombs of China. The practice is not universal, but it is astoundingly common. While some cases of grave goods being left are clearly symbolic, few of us in the modern United States think that the items that we place in a coffin with a dead loved one will be needed by them in the afterlife. Others are clearly placed with the intention that the deceased will use them, even in cultures where there is a belief that the body will remain dead and in the ground. This practice of placing grave goods suggests that there is likely a concept that the departed spirit or soul will have physical needs, and therefore some type of physical form. This suggests that the distinction between an embodied dead, such as a revenant or dragar, and a disembodied spirit may not be as distinct as our current Western tendency to separate these concepts would have us think. In his book, Vampires, Burial, and Death, Paul Barber documents descriptions of vampirism from folklore throughout Europe and notes that in Eastern Europe, vampires were at times treated as distinct entities from other supernatural beings, such as werewolves, witches, and, of course, ghosts, but were, at other times, interchangeable with these other supernatural entities. This suggests a fluidity in the folklore regarding the dead, which is not strictly compatible with the desire by many modern enthusiasts of the paranormal to make strong distinctions between different types of unnatural creatures. Similarly, I know of a story about the ghost girl, told by the Noom people, one of the many branches of the Menachee who lived in the southern Sierra Nevadas of California. In this story, the ghost girl serves as a menacing spirit, kidnapping and eating children before she's chased away to another location. But the ghost girl is also tied to a broader story in which she even has some aspects of a traditional culture hero. That is, a mythological figure who, whether good, evil, or other, does great things that ultimately affect the people. Although I've heard the Noom people with whom I work talk of the ghost girl, and have even found a transcript of an old telling of the story, the ghost girl functions very differently than the ghosts of more recent European folklore, which leads me again to wonder if there is a mistranslation at work. Could the term ghost be used here simply because there is no English word that better reflects what the girl is? The definition of ghost seems to be highly variable throughout the world, and over time and even within a culture or period of time. Dr. Finkel indicates that Mesopotamian ghosts appeared as reminders of the duties that the living have to the dead. 
the need for bodies to be treated correctly, and the proper burial rites carried out. This is echoed in the story relayed by Pliny, but it's also found in a variety of other contexts around the world. In an ethnography of the Surprise Valley Paiute, anthropologist Isabel Kelly records that many of the Paiute people with whom she worked reported that encountering a ghost was often a sign that someone's body or possessions had not been properly disposed of. Kelly also reports that many of her informants reported that to be touched by a ghost would cause illness or even death, again similar to the materials from Mesopotamia. The Draugr of Norse sagas are typically people who did not fit into the community while living, because of some personal oddity or because they had come from outside and had not properly assimilated into the community. Nonetheless, they haunt and torment the farms of those with whom they had some connection in life, similar to the Mesopotamian ghosts that Dr. Finkel describes. While scholars Katharina Beyer and Werner Schafke argue that the Draugr in medieval texts served to show the need for Christianity, as pagan rites were ineffective in keeping the dead at rest, or else served to give the heroes of the sagas a worthy adversary, the fact remains that their function within the texts often mirrored a haunting in its effect, even if the creature causing it may not have been much like the ghost that many of my listeners would think of. And, again, as we have the sagas largely in their medieval, and therefore Christian, form, Comparison with the vampire lore reviewed by William Barber does make me wonder if the Draugr were always corporeal, or if that's just one version and the one that a set of clerics decided to write down. Though the Norse and medieval English people have some of the best-known examples of the Revenant, these beliefs were not unique to Northern Europe. Archaeologist Kerry Solosky weaver reports two graves from a 6th century BC Greek culture site in Sicily that are covered in rocks and pottery, which she interprets as evidence that the community feared the return of the dead and placed rocks on them to prevent that return. In the same article, Weaver reports that there is evidence of a fear of the dead among the ancestral Greek people dating back to the Neolithic some 5,000 years ago. And, of course, Greek myth is filled with stories of people returning from the underworld, further providing examples for a cultural context of the return of the dead. I focused on the ancient Mediterranean and Europe, as well as North America for ethnography, because those are areas with which I have some familiarity, and where I can easily read the sources. However, I know that the belief of the dead returning is common the world over and found on every continent where humans live. It is not a universal belief. Ethnographers have documented cultures that lack a belief in life after death, but belief in ghosts is nonetheless very common. But of course, ghosts are not always menacing or even pests. The Mexican festival Dia de los Muertos celebrates the spirits of the dead family members and ancestors returning to visit the living. While the festival is often said to be derived from Aztec beliefs and ritual, more recent scholarship suggests that it may derive from Spanish versions of medieval European practices, such as the dance macabre. But whatever the origins, Dia de los Muertos is not about fear, but about family, reflection, and celebration. Outside of formally recognized contexts, I have learned that if one spends time speaking with people about ghosts, you are at least as likely to hear stories that are comforting as stories that are frightening. My friends of Mexican ancestry have, from time to time, told me of the comforting visits that they receive from the spirits of deceased family members. As discussed in a previous episode of this podcast, 
My father's family, of mixed German and Scotch-Irish descent, has a story of my great-grandfather returning to check up on the family. If you listen to paranormal podcasts such as Lex Wall's Anything Ghost or Jim Harold's Campfire, a fair number of the stories concern not frightening presences, but comforting visitations by family or friends. It is tempting to write the comforting ghost off as a hallmark version of the ghostly tale, a modern invention that turns the story on its head for comfort and for fun. However, I don't think that it's necessarily too far a distance from believing that your departed family members are visiting you, or even looking out for you, and the ancestor worship found in cultures across the world. To refer again to Irving Finkel's presentation, he does speak of people burying the family within the walls of the home compound, and this practice is present in many locations throughout the world. Hell, as a graduate student, my comprehensive exams required that I read up on skull burials within buildings in Peru, often taken as a sign of ancestor worship or veneration. The people of Peru descended from people who arrived in the Americas most likely sometime between 12,000 and 14,000 years ago, and who would have last had contact with the ancestors of the Mesopotamians centuries, if not millennia, before that. Clearly, something either developed in multiple regions independently, or there was a germ of an idea in a very, very ancient human culture. Like the belief in ghosts, and possibly related to it, ancestor veneration is found throughout the world on all continents where humans have developed permanent settlements, which suggests that the idea of comforting dead has been with humanity for a very long time. However, the need to venerate and appease the ancestors also suggests that the concept of the frightening dead have been with us for the same amount of time. And sometimes ghosts and their stories exist alongside other spiritual or supernatural beings in order to provide a contrast with them. In post-colonial Fiji, for example, anthropologist Matt Tomlinson suggests that ghosts indicate trauma, often related to colonization, embodying history in the relatable suffering of someone now dead. By contrast, other supernatural entities, such as the dwarf-like Veli, act as symbols of indigenous continuity and power, though a power that is somewhat dangerous by the standards of modern society. Though Tomlinson's work shows ghost stories in a modern and not ancient context, it nonetheless shows the malleability of ghosts and spirits to match the specific needs of a population at a specific time, suggesting that the belief in the returning dead is likely flexible enough to survive as a useful symbolic and folkloric tool for an extraordinarily long time. If you've been kind enough to stick with me as I rambled on through this episode, you're probably wondering, what is the point of all of this? Well, I think that the point is that belief in ghosts is ancient and widespread, and that it is probably among humanity's earliest beliefs. The nature of the ghosts is not always consistent. Sometimes they are purely things of spirit, conceived of as breath or energy or some other intangible thing. Sometimes they are more physical, needing goods for the afterlife. And sometimes they even physically return to wreak havoc on the living, as in the case of the Draugr. The spread of ancestor worship and veneration suggests that the dead are often sources of aid or comfort, just as they are sources of fear and harm. The ghost story is, I think, one of the most common stories of human culture. 
and to understand it is to better understand the nature of humanity. And so, while we love ghost stories and enjoy the thrill of learning of something that seems wrong or spooky, let us not lose sight of the fact that, in telling ghost stories, we are likely engaging in a ritual that extends back to the earliest anatomically modern humans, and perhaps even to some of our now-gone sister species, such as the Neanderthals. We should take no shame in claiming what is ours by virtue of being human. There is no shame in telling or enjoying a creepy story. In fact, it is obviously an intrinsic part of being human. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!